Thank you for being with us today. We would love to have you join us in person. To partner with us or to give online, go to www.upperroomohio.com. We hope you enjoy this message. So can we just welcome Adam up here? He's going to speak. Mr. Soon-to-be Dr. Adam Vaughn. We love you, brother. We are so appreciative of you and what your family's doing in the kingdom, and we're blessed that you're here. This was a pleasant surprise. You reached out to me this week. They had an unexpected death and came to the States for a funeral and some other things they had to work out. And, um, and I just said, will you preach Sunday? He's like, well, let me check my schedule and let me pray about it. And the next day I was like, so? Question mark, you know. And he's like, I'd be so honored. So we are blessed to have you. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Such a privilege to be here. You know, I know pastors, we, we play pastor righteousness games, you know, like Bible righteousness, about how old our Bible is, and how many marks and highlights and bookmarks and pastor's name. So I'm not playing it when I say I've been a pastor a long time. I say that to say... I've met so many pastors. I've worked at big churches where there are dozens and dozens of pastors on staff. Again, not playing the pastor righteous card, but I say that to say I know a lot of pastors. I get to train pastors. I've never met one who walks in the level of honor as your pastor, Aaron Simmons. Aaron will, Aaron will send me messages, a text, or... Um, email, whatever it might be, and I'm reading it, and I'm disoriented, like, nobody talks like this, and means it, and he does, and I read it to my wife, and somehow, you know, holding back emotion, and it's just who he is, and so it's a real privilege to be here. I've been on the receiving end from Upper Room. We've had three teams now from Upper Room come down and start, and they've all just blown us away. Um, it's just their kindness, and their love, and the way they serve, and encourage us. Nick and Tiana were a big part of that. So it's a real privilege to be here. Again, my name is Adam Vaughn. I am a missionary in Costa Rica. I also pastor a small church there. And so people always want to know, well, how in the world did you end up in Costa Rica? Well, it started in, in 2011. started when I got fired from my job. I was a pastor. And sometimes you think it's hard to get fired from a church. No, I did it. Got fired, 2011. Uh, senior pastor pulled me. Anybody, been, anybody else been fired before? So 2011, I pulled into the senior pastor's office. It was a big church. And uh, he said, Adam, we just want to affirm your gifts and your calling. And I'm, I'm waiting for the but, you know. And he says, you did exactly what we hired you to do. Exactly. But we're ready to go this direction. And we think that your gift and calling is that way. And so we're going to let you go. And he was exactly right. I, I wasn't the right guy for the job. I'm not designed to call. He, he wasn't one doing anything sinful. He's a great man, a great church. So I was let go. Well, if you know me, unfortunately, I've struggled with performance mentality my whole life and getting my identity from performance. So you would have anticipated that I just turn into a puddle on the floor, right? Wallowing in my melancholy and depression. But instead, strangely enough, I didn't let the enemy have a foothold in that door. I didn't let the enemy plant seeds. And I fostered relationship with my friends who fired me. And we still have a good relationship. And they're still friends of mine. And what the Lord did is he awakened something that was dormant. 
He birthed something that I didn't know I was missing. What is he birthed a hunger for the Holy Spirit. See, I'd served in ministry for a while already, but for me, the Trinity was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Scriptures. And I was missing the Holy Spirit on a personal, intimate basis. And so the Lord birthed this hunger within me, and then I was hired to serve at a church in Dayton with my friend and one of my heroes, Steve Bowen. Uh, I was hired as the discipleship pastor, so supposed to be the one discipling, but I was actually the one receiving and learning, learning so much about the Holy Spirit, seeing him touch and move and heal and restore. And what I said to be true about the Holy Spirit became true in my life. My life reflected it. But I, I came to this realization that every belief that we have, we hold in a hierarchy, we have all of our beliefs in a hierarchy. Now, I'll give you an example. Example, for my health. There's seasons in my life where what I ate, it was important. And now, right now, it's more like right about here. It's let's just survive, whatever I can cram in there in time. And so it, it changes. You know, I'm in USA, and we have Chick-fil-A here. And so I'm really enjoying that and taking advantage of it. And I don't mean the healthier options either. I mean more fried. We don't have that where I live. So... But my wife, she's up at 5 a.m., so in her hierarchy, health's pretty high, exercising. You know, go from one church to the next to the top, they say it's evangelism. We want to see souls say it's beautiful. Another church, no, 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 it's, it's worship. We've got to give God all the glory. That's beautiful. No, 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 it's about discipleship, remember? We're called to make it. So anyway, it, it changes our hierarchy of beliefs. And so I pray to process, wrestle, what do you want my hierarchy of beliefs to look like, Lord? I realize you're inviting me to know and pursue Holy Spirit. And I came across Acts 13, and it talks about King David. It says, David was a man after God's own heart. It doesn't say that about anyone else. So I processed, well, what in the world was King David's hierarchy of beliefs? What did he have on top? And I remembered Psalm 51. Psalm 51, King David goes to the Lord, and he's repenting of the Bathsheba incident. He'd, he'd done some heinous sins. He's begging God for forgiveness. God the Father always offers forgiveness. But he says this to God, whatever you do, don't take away your presence or your Holy Spirit. He had, I mean, he had tons of everything. Why would he say that? Because in his hierarchy... The presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit were at the top. He knew a man after God's own heart. There's nothing more valuable than the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And I got to see that where I was serving in Dayton and I was learning. And so I wanted to live that out. And the Lord began speaking and working. And I was actually serving a team in Honduras through the vineyard. And the Lord just whispered in my ear, hey, why don't you just sell it and give it all away and move to Central America? And I'm just thinking, that can't be Lord's voice. You know, there's no way, because that's not me. You know, that's for somebody like Steve Bowen. You know, this guy, he knows missions, and he's powerful evangelist. And, I, you know, I've, I evangelize, but I don't have the anointings that my friends have. I pastor and disciple. And Lord lovingly confirmed it, and I shared with my wife and my older kids, uh, I think the Lord might be inviting us to do this. Immediately, they're like, okay, let's go, Dad. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like very slow and cautious. And no, no, no. I, I like, I've never made any fashion risks. I've never changed my hairstyle. I'm, I'm very, like, not wild and crazy. The idea of being a missionary, I'm, I'm like, literally, I'm the envelope system. I mean, I got to know what I'm making so I can plan out now for next February. You know, I, I'm, I'm thinking that way. I can't be a missionary. 
The next thing I know, I'm selling, giving away everything and moving to Costa Rica. We, we had a shipping container come and they put it in the road and uh, we put a car in it and some twin mattresses and some Legos and just the essentials. And the driver's like, okay, so where am I taking this? I said, Costa Rica. He's like, where? We'll take it to this town. Okay, where, where do you want me to take it in this town? I'm like, I don't know. He said, what do you mean? I was like, well, I'm not really sure. We don't have a place lined up. He's like, well, you want me to ship everything you own, which isn't very much, by the way, to this country? And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And I said, there's no street names anyways. There's no mailboxes. I mean, <laughs> some of you guys have been there. And I don't have a place to live there. But just ship it. I'll, I'll figure it out later. And the guy's baffled, and I'm baffled. I'm saying out loud, what am I doing shipping all this stuff? And so we, we moved there, and the Lord has been so good to us. It's been a journey, hard seasons, good seasons, but the Lord's just provided so many opportunities to offer encouragement and hope and friendship. My friend Steve taught me about the power of acts of kindness. We offer training. We serve in public schools. We've installed water home innovations. I've been very fortunate to be accepted into a couple of networks of pastors where I get to offer just friendship, encouragement, and some training. There's countless opportunities. We serve in public schools. And so it's a, it's a privilege to get to serve there. We definitely have not figured it out yet. We're learning as we go. But the Lord has been so, so good to us. So grateful for Tip City's uh, upper room. Again, as I mentioned, we've had three teams from your church, and they've all just blessed us so much. And Aaron blesses me throughout the year. So grateful for you guys. And this morning, I'd like to share for a little while about something called spirit-empowered leadership. And I say that because I want to speak specifically through a biblical perspective. I believe as Christians, what we've done sometimes, is we've taken a secular framework for leadership and we've placed it right on top of the church. The secular thinking has permeated and penetrated our minds and so I've got a little satire to read here. It's from a very interesting book. It, it's uh, the hypothetical situation as if the 12 disciples were put in front of a human resource department and their background check and their vocational aptitude check. And this is the results. This is what happens. It says, thank you for sending the resumes of the 12 men you picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken a battery of tests. We've not only run the results through our computer, but have arranged personal interviews for each one of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. It's the staff's opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They don't seem to grasp the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable, <laughs> given to fits of temper. Andrew has no, absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a skeptical attitude that would undermine morale. Matthew has been blacklisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, James and Thaddeus have radical leanings and are both registered high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind, and he has contacts. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend this man, Judas Iscariot, as your controller and right-hand man. Sincerely, the Human Resource Department. It's satire, and it's funny because satire is funny because irony because there's truth in it. If we implement into our mindsets a secular view of leadership, this is what we would get. Oh, yeah. 
Judas is the only one. So I just want to process for a little while what I call spirit-empowered leadership because the New Testament surprisingly doesn't speak that much about leadership. In the Greek language and the English language, there's not one word that correlates in Greek to our English word leader. It makes it harder to study. Now, there's lots to be learned about leadership inferentially through the life of Jesus. But Jesus only overtly, directly speaks about leadership one time, once in all the Gospels. Isn't that incredible? What Jesus talks about instead of leaders is followers. There's a difference because, well, we followers because we already have a leader. We have a good shepherd, a best interest, capable, competent. He invites us to be followers. And so I, I shared briefly here about the 12 disciples, and I mentioned James and John. They place personal interest above company loyalty. Maybe you remember in Matthew 10, James and John come to Jesus, and they do what you know, I remember doing as a kid, teacher. We want you to do something for us. We want you to promise they do. But it's one of those things like, promise me you'll say yes. Promise you say yes. You know, before you ask the question. And so Jesus is like, well, what is it you guys want? We want to sit at your right and your left in glory. So this is, this is James and John. And so what does Jesus do? He responds. But when he responds, he gives us his one direct statement on leadership. It's in Mark 10, verse 45. He says this. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, rather to serve and give his life as a ransom for the sake of many. This is Jesus' model for us for leadership. This is the one direct address of leadership. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul is speaking, Paul the Apostle. And now, when you read the New Testament, you know, the word used for servant, which is a very common word in the New Testament, is normally either diakonos, which we get deacon, or doulos. But Paul picks a very different word. If, if I have 1 Corinthians 4.1, very different word in the Greek. In English it says, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So here's, he's saying, we're servants and stewards. But this word for servant is different. It comes from the word under rower, meaning the person in the belly of the ship who has the oars, who's doing this thing. The servant is the under rower. So what does that make you think of? The under rower doesn't receive any of the credit or the glory. We're not designed to receive the credit or the glory because it's not about us. Spirit-empowered leader, the under rower, wants to do whatever pleases the captain for the captain to get glory, for the captain to get credit, to do his will. To please him. And the under rower down here maximizes his impact or her impact when he is in harmony with the other rowers. Yeah. Psalm 133 is a psalm of ascent and it starts with this. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That word unity is the word where we get harmony. How good it is when we live in harmony. And I can't sing. I have the privilege of sitting under Adam's worship in a lot of venues every time blown away. I don't really understand harmony. People explain it to me. But apparently, you're not singing the same note. But it's all together. And it's beautiful. And there's a unity to it. And unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Huge difference. 
how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And in us as servants and stewards, as under rowers, when we're in harmony, we maximize the kingdom impact. And again, the under rowers don't get the glory. And instead, instead of using the secular language of leader, again, I just would say we process the idea of followership instead of leadership. Leadership from a secular mindset has these connotations of a, a functional power position that exercises authority, whereas followership has a posture of relationship. And the connotations are trust and love. Which one sounds like Jesus' model for us in the New Testament? It's the followership, the relational, built on trust and love. And so I want us to be careful, and I'm speaking to myself because I've realized how I've projected onto the church, onto the scriptures, a secular mindset. When what Jesus is asking for is followers, and when he says followers, he's inviting great intimacy. Our hearts. He wants to know us. I have a couple of biblical examples. In Acts 6, you might remember the situation. There's the, the Grecian Jewish widows, and there's the Hebraic Jewish widows, and the food distribution, food distribution system's not working out. So the apostles say, well, let's select seven men to distribute food. And we, we get deacons from here based on the verb used. But I want to point out, when it says let's pick seven men, their job's food distribution, you know what their qualifications are? Wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. But, but this is just food distribution. Yeah. yeah. Holy Spirit. It's calling us all to be spirit-empowered leaders, and it doesn't look like what the world thinks it might look like. It might be food distribution. I like doing food distribution. I think I'm a little bit better at food distribution than I am standing on stage, to be honest. And I think my kingdom impact is usually more powerful. So we've got Stephen, and he's selected. He's called a man of, of wisdom and full of Holy Spirit. And in the next chapter, he's being attacked, and these people have paid people to lie about what he's saying. And so they're accusing him. So he stands up boldly and he presents this powerful sermon. And they're just going crazy with anger and rage at him. And they begin to pick up stones and start pelting him with stones. Here's what happens. It's in chapter 7. It says, in verse 55, I have it just here. It says, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, and when I see that I'm on the edge of my seat, full of the Holy Spirit, what's going to happen? You know, I'm expecting is it Deliverance is a prophetic word. He's going to do a miracle full of the Holy Spirit. So while they're stoning Stephen, he says this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Do you see this? Listen, the Lord fills us with his spirit to comfort us, give us peace, of course. But the Lord fills us with his spirit for his kingdom to empower us for ministry. Why? Because it's not about us. He empowers us for his sake. He empowered Stephen, the Holy Spirit, so that Stephen could love and forgive supernaturally. Yeah. Spirit-empowered leadership's forgiving the people who are throwing stones at us and asking God not to count the sin against them. Yeah. Listen, this is hard stuff. We need Holy Spirit to live this way. We need Holy Spirit to forgive. Forgiving someone throwing stones at you is much harder than giving a sermon. 
These people had accused him and attacked him. Verses 58 and 59 use the word stoning, showing it was a continuous action. It wasn't just one stone. They kept going, pelting, pelting. The last words, forgive them. King David is another great example. We, uh, we'd love to tell the story of Goliath, and what a great story, of course. Little guy, defeats huge giant. But one of the stories that impacted me is in 2 Samuel 16, and it's where King David is on the run. His son Absalom is trying to take over his kingdom. He's generating this army. He's chasing King David down. King David has his men. He wants to kill his father. So King David's on the run. He's walking along, and this guy named Shimei, who was of the line of Saul, sees King David. This guy hates David. Let me just pause for a second. No matter who you are, some people won't be your fan. <laughs> no matter who, what I say, some people aren't going to be on board with it. That's okay. This guy was not King David's fan. He starts cursing King David. He starts throwing rocks at King David, throwing dust, yelling obscene things. Well, King David's right-hand man, oh, he's, he's just fuming. He's like, please, let me take care of him. Do you know what King David did? He's like, he says, you won't touch him. Just let him be. Listen, this is spirit-empowered leadership. Why? Because we begin in a spirit of love, power, and self-control. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in an incredible measure of self-control. David had every right. He had the resource, the authority to extinguish this little nuisance. But he exercised something that the Spirit gives us, self-control. Walking humbly is hard. Very hard. And I'm not saying that we pretend we're not hurt when people are throwing stones and cursing us. No, we've got to be real about what we're feeling. We have to process it, put language to it in a healthy way. But to be the Spirit-empowered leaders, we've got to walk humbly. We have to forgive exercise self-control. Philip is another example, an example that really stirs in me. So when I mentioned the, the Hebraic widows and the Grecian widows, they selected seven. Philip was one of them. He's called Philip the Evangelist. So in chapter 8 of Acts, it tells a story where Philip is basically leading revival. I mean, he's preaching. He's doing deliverance. He's doing healings. It's just powerful stuff. And then what happens? So this is one aspect of spiritual power, empowered leadership. This is what we think of normally, right? When you're a spirit-empowered leader, think of somebody leading revival. That's part of it. But then what happens? An angel of the Lord speaks to Philip and says, you go south. So Philip goes south. This is what a spirit-empowered leader does. He values the voice of the Lord and he obeys. He goes south. And there's an Ethiopian eunuch and he's traveling. And, and God whispers, Philip, just stay close by. And he's reading this passage in Isaiah he says, stay close by. Philip explains it to him, explains the gospel, leads him to the Lord, baptizes him. So really, if you summarize, what did Philip do? The spirit-empowered leader revivalist, what did he do? He stopped for the one. Steve Bowen taught me this when I was in Dayton. Stop for the one. That's what a spirit-empowered leader does. He stopped for the one. And then the really cool thing about Acts 8 is that after Philip baptized the Ethiopian eunuch, he brings the guy up, Philip disappeared. I've always wondered, what in the world happened to Philip? Was he teleported? I know God took people up. I, I, I'm ready for you to come join me. He just picks this guy up, brings him to heaven. I know that Elijah ran supernaturally fast and outran the chariots. What did he do with Philip? 
I don't know, but we can find out more about Philip in Acts 21. It says this. It says, on the next day, we. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he's traveling with Paul on his missionary journeys. So it says this, Acts 21. I'll just read it, verse 8. On the next day, we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, so we know it's the same Philip. So he was described as the evangelist, one of the seven from, from Acts chapter 6. We stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. So what's Philip been doing? Spirit-empowered leader, the revivalist. He's been raising up four daughters to value purity and to value hearing God's voice. This is spirit-empowered leadership. Stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, raising up their kids to believe that God's ways are best. He has their best interest at heart, raising up their kids to value God's voice, to listen to God's voice, and as a prophet, to speak out God's word to others. This is powerful, spirit-empowered leadership. He wasn't on a platform. Four daughters, what a gift. I have three and one little dude. So we process these, spirit-empowered leadership. We see from Acts 6, it can be food distribution. We see it can be preaching boldly. We see that it can be forgiving, walking humbly. King David, it can be self-control. Philip, it can be up front. It can be stopping for the one. It can be in your own house with your children. It's just it's not about us. It's about valuing the spirit, about walking in humility and love. I was in a class recently, and the professor was sharing this story. A friend of his, big wig, I didn't recognize the name, but I'm not very good with names sometimes. And this person was invited to go to Dr. Billy Graham's house shortly before he passed away. So he was really nervous, and he's excited. And he, he goes to Dr. Graham's house, and he, he pulls up outside, and a man comes running outside of the house and says, Dr. Graham's ready to see you. So this man goes inside the house, all nervous, and Dr. Graham was in a recliner with his feet propped up. He was kind of caught off guard, and his hair was all disheveled, and he had crumbs on his face. He's wearing his PJs, and his PJs were misbuttoned. This button was right here, and it's kind of a little wonky. And this man is still like, you know, just waiting to hear what word Dr. Graham's going to say. Dr. Graham starts talking about his dog who's running around and jumping, and what a good dog he has. Anybody know somebody who loves to talk about their dog? Proud of their dog? Yeah. One time I, I set my dad up. He was on a mission trip, and we were the team, and I'm like, hey, Dad, tell him about Toby. He claims Toby the dog's my brother and the favorite child. And like, so my dad's swiping and showing him all these pictures. I'm like, hey, Pop, show him some pictures of us together or just of me. And he had this like panic look on his face. I knew he didn't have one single picture of me on his phone. Busted, busted forever. And he tried to play it off. Oh, we don't have time. We gotta get going. So it's just and busted. But here's Billy Graham. He's just talking about his dog. I'm, I'm not shaming you if you love your dogs. What I'm getting at is that this man was so confused, and he he left Dr. Graham's. And he's driving away. He immediately has this conversation with the Lord. He's like, God, what in the world just happened? And God quickly said, look, it's not about Billy Graham, and it never was, and it's not about you either. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's about him. We're under rowers. Remember 1 Corinthians 4.1, the servant. 
We're the under rowers for his sake, for his glory. We're stewards of his mysteries. What a privilege that he lets us be stewards of his mysteries. And so I'm praying, processing, or what does this look like? And I feel like to make it really concise and short, he just explained it this way. Find out what grieves the Holy Spirit and don't do that. Find out what pleases the Holy Spirit and do that. It's really that simple, right? And so I've been camped out in Colossians 3 personally, reading it over and over again with conviction every time. And hope you know conviction's a gift from the Lord. Shame's not from the Lord. Conviction's a gift because he has your best interest. Reading it over and over again because my life's not reflecting it well. But I'm going to read Colossians 3, 12 through 17. This sums it up for us about how to not grieve the spirit, how to be spirit-empowered leaders. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Again, right back to those examples with Stephen forgiving. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. The greatest and most powerful leadership quality we have is love. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, there's the unity harmony, you are called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Just a brief mention on two verses. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is Christ's peace. This isn't like a temporary fleeting peace. This is the peace he says to his disciples, my peace I give to you. And when it says rule here, it's drawing from the word that means to arbitrate. Let Christ's peace be the judge or the umpire in your life to determine if something's worthy of stealing your peace. If something's that big of a deal, I'm gradually learning to say it's just not that big of a deal. And the truth is if we come to God and we're like, God, please help me with this one. God's never going to say, oh, man, that is a tough one. Oh, this one's a hard one, Adam. He's never going to say that. Let Christ's peace be the judge and umpire. How much misery and suffering could we avoid if we let the peace of Christ be the arbiter? But there's that participation factor. Let, that means we have, we're invited to be a part of it. Let the peace of Christ. And then in verse 16, it says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. This dwell means let the message of Christ inhabit you. Let it make its home inside of you. I lived my life for the message of Christ was don't do this, don't do this. As I go back and reread the Bible, I see these beautiful invitations. He's saying, let the peace of Christ. I'm commanded to let peace rule my heart. What a great command. I'm commanded, be filled with the Spirit. I'm commanded, come, you who are weary and thirsty. 
Invited to his presence. Well, what's in his presence? It's not shame and guilt. It's fullness of joy. Do you see the commands? And he's saying, let these things indwell, inhabit, make their home inside of us. So that we can be the under rowers and steward the mysteries for his kingdom, for his glory. What a privilege. So I'm not sure what... What's speaking to you this morning? What is going on in your heart, in your life? Maybe for some of you, you felt conviction. And I talked about hierarchy of belief. There's times where I've said, in my hierarchy, my family's right here. My words said my family, but my life said my family's about right here. My life and actions speak a more honest representation than my words. So maybe the Lord's lovingly convicting you about your hierarchy of beliefs, maybe he's just saying, come on, let my peace rule in your hearts. And maybe you already know about spirit-empowered leadership, but regardless of how, how much we know, our souls have this elasticity. It can expand, and we can always hold more of the Holy Spirit. Again, for his glory. I mean, walk in humility, supernatural forgiveness, love, whether we're up front or we're stopping for the one or we're investing in the kids at home. It's for his kingdom and his glory. He's inviting us to be spirit-empowered leaders. By spirit-empowered leaders, I mean just followers and lovers. So I'm not sure what resonates with you, what stands in your heart, but if you would like prayer for any reason, I know that there's a powerful prayer team. I'll invite them forward. You know, one passage that always stands out to me in John 6 is these, these people come to Jesus and like, teacher, tell us, what do we have to do to do the works that God requires? And where I serve in Costa Rica, I've got some people and they come to me, okay, Adam, just give me a list. Tell me the things I can do and can't do so I can follow my lists. But you know what? Jesus responds in John 6. We're like, teacher, tell us what we must do to do the works God requires. You know, I'm expecting a list. Jesus says, believe. Believe in the one he has sent. Just to believe. So we might follow. See, the whole New Testament is full of follow, followership. Be followers. So maybe the question, instead of saying, what do we have to do to do the works required? Maybe the better question is, Lord, what do you want me to believe? And I know what he wants you to believe because I've read this. He wants you to believe how valuable you are, how much you matter to him. But he wants you to believe that he has your best interest at heart and he wants to empower you even more. And your anointing might be off the charts. He wants to empower you even more to be spirit-empowered leaders for his kingdom, for his sake, because it's not about us. We might be stewards and servants, the underrollers, to advance his kingdom. And it's a privilege. So I'm going to pray for us. And Aaron, if you want to come forward and minister to the Lord, I just pray that your peace would rule in our hearts. Would it rule in my heart? As I say this, there's conviction. And I know times where I've given my peace away flippantly and easily. Lord, would your peace rule in our hearts? Would your word indwell, inhabit within us? Lord, as we've talked about Stephen and Philip and David, would we walk with a spirit of self-control, of love, of forgiveness? Would we value your presence? Would we value Holy Spirit? Would we know what grieves you? And would we avoid that at all costs? Would we know what pleases you? Would that be our goal? 
Fill us with you, Lord. We need you for all of it. We desperately need you. And we're thankful that when we come to you, smile and you receive us and you wrap your arms around us and you lavish us, like 1 John 3, 1. You lavish us with your love. You command us to be filled with your spirit in Ephesians 5. It's not optional. And it's a corporate congregational. You command us. It's a continuous action. Be filled. So we come, Lord, saying, fill us. We need you. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. Empower us for your sake, for your kingdom. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name.